You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. How did you guys meet? All meet. Like, it, it seems like an, a motley crew. You know what? Matt and I met probably through a fellow who looks a heck of a lot like you, Mark, a guy named uh, Dr. Michael Sullivan. Uh, one of Matt's former employees, or I guess employees, and a, and a hunting buddy of all three of us. Howie and I have been hanging out with the, what we call the usual suspects of the Garneau and McKernan neighborhoods for the last decade almost, and worked with a couple of graduate students and uh, postdocs and uh, in academic realm. And over time, our relationships have just strengthened, and we have a, a wonderful hunting buddy on one side and a socializing friend on the other. Oh. So it's been uh, been a long-standing relationship. Oh, that's that's cool. And and Howie's written several papers on um, why duck hunters fail. Um, you know, along that whole lines, where I see you guys are cited in that quite quite a bit um, and stuff. Yeah, I think there's the newest one, the rhetoric of the duck hunter, or something like that. So. <laughs> Howie, you're also um, so for. Howie, you're also taking on a new grad student, uh, who is the daughter of our big game specialist Rob Corrigan. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'm excited to work with Kate in Nepal. Yeah, she's embarrassed of her father, but that's fine. He works with fish and wildlife. Well, who isn't? So. <laughs> so I would give Rob Corrigan though one great kudo as he was one of the guys that led the charge in getting Sunday hunting permitted in Alberta he did. about 10 or 15 years ago. He did. Huh. And uh, I'll be eternally grateful to, to Rob for that. Hmm. Amen. Alberta had the Sunday hunting ban? Yeah. We were yeah. like Saskatchewan. for an, Up until when? Up until 15 years ago. 10 years ago? Yeah, about 15 really? years wow. ago. Yeah. Wow. What was what was what was the premise behind that like the well history. it was two i've never understood yeah it that. was twofold it was one of it was a vestigial to the time where none of the shops were open on sundays and there's the day of Great worship there's, yeah there's the day of worship element in terms of the bible belt here but from what i've heard from a lot of landowners they just didn't want to get pestered all weekend long and they wanted one day by which they had some respite from hunters knocking on their door. They still they still say that. And in a few WMUs in southern Alberta, we have four day hunting uh, seasons. And you know, there's Monday, Tuesday. There's a respite, so it's not all week. And that's the landowners. Just some of them have full time jobs dealing with hunters on large tracts of ranch land. Wow! Wow! And so your guys' friend and colleague that got the Sunday hunting, he's quite popular. Oh, yeah. In the oh, yeah. No. Agriculture community. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he goes incognito when he goes hunting, but otherwise he's fine. Knocks on, <laughs> knocks on doors on Sunday. Yeah. yeah, he's probably retired now. <laughs> every, every day he's out there. <laughs> Oh, well, that's cool. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, the fact that you guys have a long history uh, and stuff together, that's going to be it's going to be a ton of fun. So, uh, hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist podcast is 
and brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Once again, we'd like to thank Alpine for their continued support. Big supporters of Ducks Unlimited Canada, big supporters of us, big supporters of conservation in general. So if you're uh, out there, maybe you're looking for a new truck to haul your your duck hunting stuff out this fall maybe go check them maybe some new mud tires or something to get you out there some sort of sweet off-road trailer system duck in cranbrook in cranbrook isn't that like the official road issue is a mud tire (laughs) yeah pretty much (laughs) yeah yeah for for uh in the town of cranbrook yes I don't have a Toyota truck, but I'm deeply envious of those who do. We have a colleague that has, has a Toyota Tundra, and it is one of the finest off-road hunting vehicles imaginable. Fantastic. He could get it there at Alpine go. Toyota. Yes, he could. Yes. You could. You, you, you could come here and get, get yourself one, Lee. Um, I have to, yeah, thanks, Alpine. I uh, love the fact that you're continuing to support the podcast. Um, I will reveal that before the show, uh, Lee asked if he could make truck sounds <laughs> while Curtis was <laughs> 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 Lee, Lee, make, make the sound that I made. We, make the sound that I made crashing into uh, an embankment in Northern California. No, but I will quote you on something, Matt. Matt has one quotation. It's never say whoa in a mud hole. It's good advice. It's good advice for lots of things in life, actually. Yeah, totally. totally. Never say whoa it's, in a mud hole. Whoa. Yeah. No, don't whoa. I mean go. More like give more like give her shit. I think yeah. I think given that it's you know, the era and stuff that we're in, environmentally conscious, Lee's gonna have to work on his electric vehicle impersonation. <laughs> so. That, that one sounded like his his first truck he got when he was a kid. That, that sounds like another electric device that you find in your sock drawer, Lee. Hey, 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 now. That sounds more like my, my uh, blue-wing teal call. Hey, we, don't, we don't want to – we don't edit the show. It's fam, family content except for when Lee swears so much. Um, so I'll introduce everybody here. So uh, joining us for the first time on the podcast is uh, Dr. Howie Harshaw. Welcome. Oh, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah. Re- really excited to have you on the show. So Howie's an associate professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation at the University of Alberta. Um, so people will be like, what the heck? Kinesiology and a hunting and conservation show? But um we will close close the gap for you on that. Uh, Dr. Lee Foote, been on the show several times, retired professor from the University of Alberta as well. Oh, you got that and down, Pat. But we, we need, before we leave now. Howie, before we leave Howie, you need to know that his nickname is the Silver Fox. Yes, it's the Silver <laughs> Fox. Oh, right. Turn sideways, Howie, yes. turn sideways. That, that <laughs> is why. Oh, yes. The long silver <laughs> ponytail. <laughs> Silver very, box. very, very cool. There's, I'm, I'm there's envious. one lounge um, here in Edmonton that all the ladies know Howie only as the Silver Fox, and he's a highly sought after <laughs> and anticipated client to this one establishment. There is a, there is a pub in Sparwood, British Columbia, called the Silver Fox. Yeah, 
Well, I don't remember that time, Matt, but I was down on the one of the foreshore beaches in Vancouver. I think it was Tower Beach. And I was just looking out over the, the ocean one day, and a squirrel took a liking to my ponytail. I think it, uh, <laughs> a close encounter. <laughs> so everybody can probably uh, guess here, but this conversation about this podcast actually started about a year ago. Um, most of it was pre-recorded in emails. Uh, once you get these guys going, uh, it's sort of like, man, it's like save your content for the show. It's like, uh, last but not least, uh, Matt Besco, welcome back to the show. Great Matt. to be here. Great to be here as Matt's usual. Matt's the uh, Director of Wildlife and Licensing for the province of Alberta. And professor this year of wildlife ecology at University of Alberta. Really? Visiting professor. Yes. Oh, well, that's super cool. Yeah, I, I taught I, wow, I awesome. taught fish and wildlife management Congratulations. winter term, so it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Oh, you're teaching, not learning. Yeah, okay. no, teaching. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's bridge too far. I should be learning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Excuse me, Professor. Um, so if you were to change the mule deer season from... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What would what would you do about chronic wasting disease <laughs> if you were the director? Yeah, there was a few scenarios, uh, a few scenarios for students. It was a lot of fun. Oh, right on. Ah, well, that that'll uh, make some good good uh, humor. We'll have to get some of your students on. Let's do oh, that. Oh gosh! At the end of the semester, they a couple of them want to the take podcast. on a couple of them want to take on grad studies. So yeah, that would be really good. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll call it, um, your thoughts on Matt. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be a, a, <laughs> ep a long, episode a long and expletive filled conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned, this kind of conversation started, uh, actually last year. Um, I think it, it might've actually been in the springtime, uh, when some of the federal reports, uh, started to come out sort of reporting on, uh, waterfowl populations in Canada, um, sort of the, uh, there's the, the, the drought index reports that sort of forecast in the different regions of Canada, um, how, um, the climate for the upcoming year may have affected duck populations, those, those sorts of things. And I, I threw the question out to these fellows cause I had been digging into this before and it, and it's just completely baffled me. But waterfowl populations in this country for the most part are doing really well they're 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 skyrocketing i mean i think most people that are in the hunting world probably understand the whole situation with snow geese and their their sort of record numbers in north america right now and kind of their effects on arctic ecology um i've just covered stories or i've been continuing to cover stories about the issues that they have with urban geese because of geese po canada goose populations are picking up um, and, and there was also a report uh, last spring uh, that was sort of looking at all the various guilds of birds in Canada and, and it was showing sort of a concerning downward trend in all sort of different guilds except for the waterfowl, which were doing almost the opposite of everything else was. And the question I threw out to these, these fellas was the opposite is happening with waterfowl hunter numbers in this country. And 
we started a bit of a conversation and right away uh, Lee and Matt were like we need to get Howie involved uh, I think you were away at the time and uh, came back and and chimed in and this just sounded like it was a it was a great fit but it's you know I love waterfowl hunting you guys do as well I would love for more people to get into it it's uh it's a heck of a lot more relaxing than big game hunting you don't have to worry about you know getting something large a long ways from the truck where you're sort of going oh my god what did i do you know or a grizzly bear coming up on you when you're skinning your deer or whatever like you don't have to be quiet just, you can talk yeah yeah that's that's a can't move though like i'm supposed to so <laughs> i just i have um the government of canada's website open which is the annual estimates of active waterfowl hunters uh in canada and it's data from 1975 up to 2018 I don't know if there is a more current one, but like, it's shocking. So back in 1975, I uh, went back a little bit farther, um, around 370,000 waterfall hunters in, in Canada. And in 2018, it was uh, downwards of around 94, 95,000. Like the, the graph is shocking. Like it's just a, it's, it's plummeting. It's, it's an airplane that's lost its engines. And um, so that's my central like topic for, for you guys to, to dig into today is like, here's a whole situation where the demand for hunting seems to be going down for a group of game species that's just populations are skyrocketing. So it doesn't seem intuitive. And you know, there's been similar declines in waterfowl hunters in the U.S. as well, uh, along oh, those same time periods. They've been kind of mirroring each other. And that's one of the reasons why you have all these R3 programs to really try and bolster, recruit new folks into well, all types of hunting for sure, but waterfowl hunting as well. Um, so the decline of hunters is a, is a continental problem. But at the same time, I think the increase in populations of waterfowl is a continental success story. Um, oh, groups like the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, working with groups like Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, Nature Conservancy of Canada, has done a fantastic job of securing habitat. And I, I don't, I'm not an ecologist, but I think that's an underlying reason for that success. I defer to Matt and, and leave, but it's been a concerted yep, effort right. to, to do that. We've had, uh, we've had about a 70% loss of wetlands in Alberta, yet it hasn't really shown up as the loss of breeding potential or breeding maximum potential of waterfowl they still do really well on wet years yeah, where um, are the where the waterfowl the production zones in canada sorry go ahead the duck factory yeah, yeah the, the duck, duck factory, factory uh, uh saskatchewan 70 percent of all waterfowl each in, in a good year come from the duck factory this smaller area of north dakota south dakota montana alberta saskatchewan uh, if there's water there, you're going to have good continental populations. And it's, um, but there's, a, there's a, could be a, a misinterpretation of this if you say, well, hunter numbers have gone down and duck numbers have gone up, so they've had a reprieve from mortality and their numbers are skyrocketing. That probably is not the relationship. It's probably more related to uh, having a series of wet years. We just don't kill enough of the ducks, even when hunter numbers are fairly high except in a few exclusive areas of South Louisiana, Central Valley, California, and a few other places. Mm. Um, but waterfowl are resilient. They're very, they're very uh, reproductive. They're an 
are selected species, which means high reproductive, you can have increases in waterfowl population continentally with a 15 to 20 percent nest success rate. That means 80 percent of all the nests out there are destroyed by skunks, foxes, crows, ravens. Um, so they're they're really fecund. Yeah, wow. A good wow. part of Alberta um, is set aside and managed for waterfowl production, and in you know northern Alberta and places like Lake Clare. Uh, and and many of the other wetlands that we have, Nawamp involvement, Ducks Unlimited involvement, Delta Waterfowl invo involvement, production there is really, really uh, profound. And uh, uh, as hunting season comes along and Lee, myself, will be out there in October during the peak of duck and goose migration, and we'll hear maybe one other hunter several kilometers away. It's a real, real gap i think in terms of a missed opportunity yeah it raises now, a question about what's natural though these ducks are living on a smorgasbord of wheat corn soybeans rice that didn't exist pre-european uh involvement I, there's some chance that we've artificially inflated the populations of course of snow geese but of many other species as well i mean it's conceivably we have more mallards pintails blue wing teal than we had oh i don't know 400 years ago their overwinter survival yeah, we're, is amazing we're putting more calories on the yeah. landscape sorry now at the at the start i you know when i was introducing howie um you know i said he's an associate pr professor in the faculty of kinesiology sport and recreation so so here's here's the connection here so obviously lee and matt are ecology biology based in their discussion but uh how you've been involved in and in, in done some research uh in this sort of around this exact question I'm, i've seen a couple of um research projects sort of on on your bio on the on the university website uh, Al alberta migratory bird hunting recruitment and retention uh, and understanding the dynamics of people's interactions with waterfowl um, so as I understand it, that's kind of coming at this question a bit more from the social side. Is that kind of correct? Like people's yeah. choices and that sorts of things. And so what, what did you specifically learn about Albertans? I guess let's start there. Um, well, I, I just take a step back and say, yeah, I'm really curious about how people engage with nature and some of the, the benefits that that might have, for example, um, you know, if, are people who are more engaged in nature-based activities like hunting, are they more likely to get involved with other sort of pro-environmental or pro-conservation behaviors and other aspects of their lives? To me, that's, that's the interesting piece. And there's a couple of different ways I look at that. Um, and certainly working with, with Lee and Matt in, in Alberta has helped me do that. Um, oh gosh, I think it's been about four or five years ago we started that study to really understand why people do stop hunting, um, why some people continue, and why some people just refuse to even get involved with the activity. And we kind of think we had some interesting results. And it wasn't as cut and dry as we would have expected, which is, you know, gravy for people like me and Lee. Uh, we just continue to, to, to look into stuff. But on the other hand, the, the reasons that people stop hunting, uh, particularly stop hunting waterfowl, they're not really, you know, glamorous. They 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 move they their social network changes they don't have anyone to go with anymore they don't have as much time as they used to um trying to find a place to hunt is getting more challenging 
um, just because of urbanization and those close to home opportunities are getting fewer and fewer. Um, and in, certainly in Alberta, a lot of folks mentioned the regulatory environment. And that was a oh, real really? turnoff. Uh, and there's been a couple of different sort of policy instruments, policy decisions over the past 20, 25 years that have made it challenging for some folks to continue hunting, I think. Yeah, we hear some of the same thing with fishing, right? You know, just sort of the people throw up their hands. You know, you're allowed four of these, two of these, but you're allowed three of those if the two of them are uh, under a certain size and people are like, like me yeah. that aren't good with math, we're like, what the heck, right? So yeah, that, that's interesting, so yeah. that being said, there's a lot of simplification that has occurred, especially in the prairie provinces over the last couple of years. Like the restriction on the number of pintails, that went away. Now we're going to increase the number of white fronts to match that of the dark geese. And, uh, and we are... Uh, uh, looking at continuing to harvest snow geese at, at great rates, as well as the addition of sandhill cranes in Alberta. So it's becoming easier and easier to interpret those regulations. So I hope that that would be fish and something Service. that we can do that. Yeah. Yeah, the Fish and Wildlife Service recognized complexity as a, as a problem many years ago, both with the hunters interpretation, because they had a point system where different waterfowl had different points. And when they surveyed waterfowlers in Louisiana, at least, they had they would come up and they would say, we have three species of ducks. There's a gray duck, there's a mallard, they all knew mallard, and then there was all the others. I mean, it was like they, were, they didn't know their species, so they couldn't adhere to the law properly. So they changed that back to just a, a bird number limit of any species. They're also going the other way, their adaptive ha uh, harvest management s schedule, they knew that the resolution of, of fine-tuning waterfowl populations with hunting was really beyond them. It was like a, a four-ball combination in pool. It just wasn't going to happen. So they, they basically moved to three categories, which is lots of birds, green light, we have a very liberal season. N very few birds, we have a red light, so we have a very restrictive season. And yellow light is mid-level, so it's three categories. It's kill a bunch, be very cautious, or we're going to have a very normal, moderate season instead of trying to get down to the percentages and all that. And the game, the game regulations, that's one component of complexity, the species identification. And then when, it, when the steel shot ban came into force North America wide, that was many years ago. Um, but even today, we hear about a lot of complaints about that. And we hear about Alberta and saying, you know, it's just not a problem here in Alberta. The lead deposition is very different. We have mud bottom, you know, sloughs rather than limestone bottom lakes. It's just not not as uh, as problematic. That being said, you could be really effective at steel. But I think everything considered that way access is what I hear to be a very, very important problem, even though that the number of of private properties that you can access is amazing here in Alberta, Saskatchewan, even better. But And public properties. Uh, and public properties. But a lot of the private lands right now are being tied up by people that have been going historically, by other types of hunters. And uh, landowners are getting squeezed by a number of hunters every year. And lately, more than ever, they're looking at some kind of economic incentive in order to manage hunters. I know where you and I hunt, you know, it's close proximity to Edmonton Lee. And there's not a lot of hunters 
uh, in there. Uh, but start as, you start moving out into Alberta's breadbasket in that Provost area in Stettler. Um, a lot of the guide outfitters, they're using a lot of those properties. And, and quite honestly, the access into them isn't as good as people once had before. Yeah, I've heard from younger folks who thinking about hunting, one of the impediments is they don't want to have to go down those long laneways and talk to someone they don't know. They, the question they have is, isn't there an app for that? Can't we do this yeah. remotely? Yeah. Um, and I, I think I understand where they're coming from. But on the other hand, making that connection with that landowner, you know, and sort of looking each other in the eye, I think is an important part of understanding that landscape in that particular mm-hmm. that particular area. And it's just an interesting generational thing, perhaps, too. Yeah, and, and showing... Uh, we're seeing some of those shifts going on. Yeah, showing fidelity to one you know, particular some, area. Go ahead, Lee. Sorry. I'm sorry. Matt, you're a little bit muted, and I, I'm talking over you. I'm yeah, sorry Yeah, no, no. That. Go ahead. Um, yeah. um, the state of Montana some years back had a real interesting program where they they called it uh, the the dating app, where they tried to link up hunters and, and uh, landowners. And they had a, a common internet place you could go and you could find a place, make the connection, sort of talk to each other, make sure everything was, was fitting well, and then you could go hunt there. And eventually you would probably meet the landowner, but the first connection was, was online. And I think there's some opportunity there now, now that people are so connected and uh, people want ducks hazed off their off their swatted fields or if they have a, a overpopulation problem or if they just welcome hunters. Again, Alberta is one of the few places I've ever lived where there wasn't uh, a leasing situation. So there was no, no, there were no dollars legally traded hands when you got permission to hunt. You didn't lease land or pay a user fee or anything. I suspect some of that happens under the table, uh, but it's uh, there's a lot of pressure from landowners to be compensated now. That they want they want users that are rutting up their fields or mo- moving their cattle around or whatever inadvertent to their hunt to. Uh, compensate them somehow pay them they'll use proxies and i don't know where that's going to go yeah, they'll use proxies as well and they'll be quite open about it so rather than me paying a landowner for access uh i'll pay them for a parking fee and i'll i'll park my vehicle there and they will let me you know onto their land not for any other reason than to park my vehicle but while i'm there i can go hunting so there's lots of games like that people are getting around various restrictions it's not an ethical thing to do it ties up land it monetizes everything but um landowners are i think they miss the days of having relationships with hunters that they know and are able to trust and that will you know drive down that long lane and share a pie share stories talk about sustainability and and farming practices and maintain that relationship a lot of the youth i don't know if they still want to maintain those sort of relationships i think it's quite important it's a good social skill i'll tell you a little quick little story matt and i have a, a local ukrainian family that we has been very generous with their time let us hunt out on their property and at the end of each season matt who's quite the culinary artist will fold out a table, pull out his, his camp stove on the tailgate, make these beautiful roast duck with delicious sauce uh, on a big uh, uh, bun, and we'll have a big meal there. And the landowners will come out, and we'll just chat and sit in the sun and watch the birds fly and have a visit. And they really seem to look forward to it. They're disappointed when we don't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
disappointed when you didn't get anything for the day. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want the pressure of having to feed the landowners myself. I'm just not. I can't always guarantee a successful day. Um, so, Howie, one of the, one of the projects on this theme research projects that you worked on was um, that it was done on the behalf of the North American Waterfall Management Plan. Um, so. One, maybe speak, just tell people a little bit about what that is. Uh, there's a little education piece there. And and then I'll ask you the question, was a significant component of looking into that um, to do with the conservation dollars that come from waterfall hunters? Was like, was that a driver of, of people's concerns? Yeah, so the North American Waterfall Management Plan, or, or NAWAMP for short, because uh, it is a bit of a mouthful, uh, is a continental plan. So it's an agreement between Canada, the US and Mexico in terms of how they will collectively manage waterfowl. Um, you know, breeding grounds, wintering grounds, the in-between. Um, and it's been around since about the mid eighties, I think. Um, in, I think one of the drivers or one of the things that came out of it was the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which does provide a lot of funding from the US to come up to Canada, about $25 million a year for habitat protection and conservation. Um, and for the most part, NAWAMP was really involved with, with waterfowl population management and habitat management in particular. It wasn't until about 2012 that they really shifted focus a little bit, thought, wait a minute, there's a, we're missing a piece here. There's a social side of things. And realizing that conservation, yeah, you can buy up your land and things, but it's, there's another piece to it. There's that social side. What are people doing to contribute to that conservation? What are some of the decisions people are making? Can we better inform those decisions about what people do, what people prefer, what people's attitudes are around hunting um, and conservation? So roughly around 2012, the, the sort of new goal for NAWAMP came in, and that's really when a lot of this more social science came in and very applied social science to inform this decision-making about how can we, for example, um, better engage people in this hunting endeavor? How can we reach out to people other than hunters who might have interests in wetlands and other natural areas? Now, certainly in the U.S., NAWAMP is particularly focused on waterfowl and wetlands. In Canada, it's interpreted a little bit differently, a little bit more broadly, uh, recognizing the connections between uplands and water and wetlands, thinking about all birds and all habitats increasingly. Um, but it's, I think it's been a real conservation success with the amount of um, lands that have been, been able to be conserved in Canada because of that. Yeah. So in terms of that particular funding, um, you know, a lot of the funding for these projects comes from Wildlife Habitat Canada, from that duck stamp, well, the Canadian duck stamp. Mm. Um, and I'd say, yeah, the bulk of my research is funded through that duck stamp initiative. So it really is hunters who have supported the research that I've been up to. And that's been, uh, they've been really generous with that. And I'm really grateful. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that's obviously got to be a con big concern on everybody's, you know, minds when you see, you know, since the mid seventies to, you know, uh, just a few years ago, you know, a decline from 375,000 to, you know, 95,000 uh, hunters. Um, th those are just Canadian hunters as well. So that, that, that's not bringing in, um, uh, foreign hunters that come in and, you know, water, which is probably a relatively small part of that. 
um, the, the, the overall number. But um, yeah, so I mean, when you think of just that loss in the purchase of the duck stamp uh, and, and funds that are available for research and for, and for habitat work, like it's, it's uh, and you know, that's a big driver why I wanted to have this conversation about like, you know, increasing game numbers but decreasing <laughs> numbers of hunters it still seems quite uh quite count counterintuitive to me yeah and i think that's one of the reasons why nawap and, and other groups are starting to think you know reaching out beyond hunters not excluding hunters not saying okay we're, we're done but who else is would be a, a compatible group to to work with wildlife viewing becomes a, a pretty big one even bird watching and you know, there's not that many, well, I should be careful what I say here. Um, I don't think that bird watching and, and waterfowl hunting are at loggerheads. I think there's a lot of compatibilities there. Um, especially when we talk about habitat conservation, that's something that both groups agree on. When we ask people, why are you out there, whether they're a hunter um, or a bird watcher, they enjoy being in nature. They enjoy mm. the sounds, the smells of nature. So they have a lot in common. They appreciate things a little bit differently, perhaps. They do yep. different activities. But I think that general appreciation, concern for the environment is something that waterfowl hunters have a lot in common with other people who don't hunt. And we probably don't focus on that as much as we should. And there's a traditional... Oh, look, honey, a northern shoveler. We've never seen one before. <laughs> oh, why is it fall? Oh, it just hit the lake. What the heck happened there? Oh, well, they, they can have it. They can have the shoveler. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you go back way, I love the North American Waterfowl Management Plan, and I like the sophistication. I like the broadening of it. If you go way, way back to the dirty 30s when Ducks Unlimited first got started, that was they had this saying, more ducks for duck hunters. They were focused on a very tight group. They didn't really care about bird watching. They've come around to that in recent years, but they and they got the low-hanging fruit of the best wetlands preserved, you know, some small percentage of them for waterfowl production and hunting opportunities. And the water, the North Nawamp took it to another level. They started understanding the motivations of a broader society. And hunters should, I think, really be proud that their, their dollars and their investment is being used to service all of society, not just a select narrow group of hunters. It's the bird watchers, it's the nature walkers, it's the dog trainers, it's the, it's, it's, and actually it's groundwater recharge, it's biodiversity, yeah. it's, uh, it's carbon sequestration. There's social goods that flow out of these wetlands that are go far beyond a handful of ducks that go home for yeah. the cooking pot. I know in terms of a species at risk value, wetlands are incredibly important. And we're looking at the stability of, of these populations. They're no longer in decline and they're coming back. I know that, you know, since DDT and other organic chlorine pesticides have been banned in North America, then we start to see more hawks and, and falcons appear and eagles and the like. But, you know, when, you, when you're when you out in Western Canada and it's quite often that we'll see peregrines feeding on ducks um, all year long, a lot of them aren't migrating anymore because the winters are relatively mild and we're getting these resident ducks that are appearing around the rivers and, and so forth, and the falcons are staying as well. So we're seeing benefits for a multitude of species in addition to the social benefits, in addition to the, the carbon benefits that Lee was talking about. It's amazing. Yeah. Have, have any of you ever seen any like studies that are looking at sort of the willingness to pay um, part of this question? Because um, 
Howie, what, when, when you mentioned the duck stamp, um, thinking about that, like, correct me if I'm wrong, when you buy your federal migratory bird license, like, you're buying that as an additional, like, you don't have to pay that fee when you get your license. You choose to support by buying the duck stamp. Is, is that not I right, or is it yeah, just no, automatically no. tacked you on? Have to, you have to yeah. have a duck stamp and a, a provincial license in order to pursue waterfowl. Okay, so so it is both. But you can buy the duck stamp by itself, can Correct. you not? Like if I were a birder, I could just every year buy a duck stamp and say, hey, I too am supporting. Uh, I feel that is not that well advertised uh, or, or maybe no one outside the hunting community. But um, Well, the philatelists, the philatelists, the stamp collectors certainly know about it. And there's people that, there are people that have a continuous record from the time, the 1930 whatever when, when duck stamps started. But, uh, yeah, there, there aren't many people that could just go out and buy the stamp, make that donation, that $17 purchase. Yeah, so we engaged in a, a national survey, well, it's a continental survey, but we'll focus on the Canadian piece. We heard back from, what was it now, about 1,400 waterfowl hunters and about 4,000 bird watchers. Different sample frames and a different mode of contact, and that's one of the reasons why they have different numbers. And, you know, we asked um, bird watchers, you know, would you buy a duck stamp? This is what it's about. Um, uh, would you buy it? And roughly half said, I had no idea this was available. Yeah, I would do this um, because it's for conservation. It's about habitat conservation. That makes sense to me. I like wetlands. I'll, I can I can do that. Now, we didn't follow up to find out how many of those, they actually did it. But I think, it, you know, Wildlife Habitat Canada said, well, gosh, maybe we do need to think about marketing this a little bit differently. Um, there does seem to be an appetite among some Canadians, at least, to uh, buy a duck stamp for, among people who don't hunt. Let's see if we can, you know, connect with those people. Um, yeah, um, I mean, from a conservation funding perspective, if I were in that role, I would, you know, definitely want to develop a emerging market or an untapped market to keep the funds coming in. Uh, as a passionate waterfall hunter, I don't want to ever see us in this country in a position where, you know, hunter numbers go almost to zero, but, you know, we're, we're still, you know, um, you know, got the levels of funding, you know, coming from elsewhere. Cause you know, I think there's a lot of loss to our culture and yeah. all that sort of stuff, you know, f from that as well. So now some of the, some of the work you did, Howie as well was also looking at, like some of the different hunter strategies, the recruitment, the retention, um, the re reinstatement or reinvigoration of people. Is there anything, any lessons around that that you've kind of seen that relate to waterfowl hunting, what it takes to get people into it? Can you draw them back in later in life? Like what, what are some? Yeah. Well, among the lapse hunters we, we spoke with, you know, what would it take to get you interested in waterfowl hunting again? You know, the, the one that sticks out in my mind is not much. Uh, someone to go out with, um, oh. more time, some, somewhere to go, somewhere to go to the, that access issue again. Um, when we talked with non-hunters and said, you know, would you be interested in, in waterfowl hunting? And this was some work that Lee and I did with just Albertans. 9.1% um, of non-hunting Albertans that we got in touch with said, yeah, I would be interested in finding out more about this. So you think about, you know, Maybe that 9%, let's knock it down a couple, 
7% of Albertans with an interest in hunting that aren't doing it right now, that's that would be a pretty sizable improvement. So what would get wow. them involved? Mentoring, training opportunities. Mentoring. Um, and, you know, roughly a third of Albertan waterfowl hunters that we spoke with are mentoring people already. It's something that, you know, gosh, you talk to Lee and Matt, they're excellent mentors. Um, you know, Lee was one of the first people I met when I moved to Edmonton, and he was so generous with his time, generous with his, his, his network of friends and whatnot. Um, they tried to get me hunting. Um, <laughs> I, I don't hunt. So I'm blind in, in one of my eyes and just makes it really difficult to shoot safely. Um, oh, you're better shot than but, Lee then. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping I was hoping that it would make me look good. It'd be, it'd be a little me. should be a little bit quicker because there's in that millisecond where you gotta close your your yeah. your left eye to, to chew, right? Like I miss a lot of ducks in that split second of having to close the other eyelid. <laughs> actually Lee so, actually you know, Lee you... is an exceptional shot, but only when he shoots his sixteen gauge. He's unstoppable with that thing. <laughs> the myth continues. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> but I, I think with respect to R3, um, getting new people in, retaining your existing hunters and reactivating people who used to hunt but don't, um, the social side of things really seems to be an important part. So people who used mm. to hunt but don't, their social network has changed. Maybe they've moved or they have a different group of friends. Um, they have a new partner and they have that sort of social network that may change some of their behaviors. Um, we talk to hunters, and one of the reasons they continue to hunt is it's it's enjoyable. They get to be out with their friends and family and do something together, have time to talk. It's productive. They get to share in the harvest. It's it's an important part of that. And when we talk to the non-hunters, it's well, if there's someone who could you know take me under their wing and show me the ropes, I I could do that, or at least I'd like to try. So I think the well, social side of things is it's not the secret sauce, but I think it's an important component that. At least in mm. Canada, we haven't been as good at investigating. Mm. Lots I, of folks, there's a great tradition of this in the U.S. that we've been drawing on for a long time. I, but we do have different cultures, different regulations. I think there's a reason to look at Canadians um, and see how they're hunting. I, I know, I know that the uh, Alberta Hunter Education Instructors Association, they run a fairly robust uh, hunter mentorship program where they principally take on youth for that opportunity uh, and and uh, and also, you know, the adult onset hunters as well. And I think the limiting mm -hmm. component of that is how many people they're able to get to act as mentors and, and to make sure that they have access to good properties. But I would agree mentorship is number one. I think that is absolutely key. I think Lethbridge College has a waterfowl mentoring program. Yes. Uh, we spoke with some folks down there a couple of years ago. And what a great way to, to get people engaged through, through that some, kind of the program. Some of the fast Historically, when I was a kid, when I was a kid growing up, there was it was a very much of a pyramid. There were the elder duck hunters that would take, they were generally uncles, fathers, older brothers. They were always cultivating the next crop of, of duck hunters that were in their teens or young teens and up through. And it was sort of built in. And uh, that has been sort of broken with this baby boomer bulge. It's the demographic is timing out and such. We need some alternative methods of getting people introduced to this sport, I think. I know that listeners are probably going to be thinking, who's going to mention screen time and competing interests and all that stuff? I don't really have anything to say about that, but Howie, you might. Um. We didn't ask, we didn't <laughs> Not ask the question. Not as much as you'd like. 
We didn't ask the question, but the, 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 the hypothesis out there looming that we now have got a whole suite of alternative time sucks that kids, duck hunters in my age, didn't have. We had pickup trucks, and we had bush parties, and we had duck hunting, and we had, but we didn't have the, the level of, uh, of flash mobs and screen time and, and video gaming and such. It seems like in a zero-sum game time budget, there is some competition there for attention. Oh, I, I say no question. And, and During your your generation, your your disinterest started at about age sixteen or seventeen, until you got married. My disinterest in what? Hunting. Oh, there was a small pause there, but fortunately, my wife made the comment. I made the comment to my wife. I would try to divorce some my spouse if uh, if they became an anti-hunter. I don't remember saying it. She claims that I said that, and later when we got married, she never opposed it. Thankfully. Oh. She likes ducks a lot, thankfully. I know that our our fastest growing segment in hunter recruitment here in Alberta are women. And uh, they've established themselves in their careers. They Their kids are usually in their teens by that time. Um, the Instructor Association runs a bow, uh, becoming an outdoor woman program in the summer. And the recruitment out of that is amazing. And you are finding women that are finding like-minded women that are out there that are incorporating hunting into their uh, recreational schedules and they're enjoying it. And the Mm -hmm. one component that stayed relatively stable is that of youth where we continue to lose youth. A couple of years, the last two or three years were stable. We're not, you know, losing any but we're not growing them as quickly as we should and i think the competing interest is is a big part of that you know and if your parents and your grandparents and your uncles like you were growing up lee if they're not willing to spend the time with you to say wow you know you could play that video game but i'll show you the real thing like the real thing come with me and you'll see this um i don't see that happening as much anymore this phenomenon we hear about of adult onset hunting, you know, people that come to hunting late in life, is it's a pretty new thing to me. I, I never saw that when I was a kid, and I'm 65 years old. But now it's a very common thing. The, the hunting programs in the universities and the whole food angle, people come into it because of, of Michael Poland's uh, beautiful expositions about hunting wild pigs in California and things. People are really liking this gourmet natural food idea, and that's usually an activity that happens in people's 20s and 30s when you can finally afford a, a decent bottle of wine and a and a hibachi to cook on. Yeah. And the food the food angle um, like we Curtis talked about. I've on, done... Yeah, sorry, the food angle is one of the podcasts that we talked about, one element, but Yeah, Lee said I, it's overdone. Yeah, and there's yeah, he did. We're going to have to crash him. Currently. But there's other elements people are seeing hunters not in the light of you know, there's my big truck and this is what I'm going to do on weekends and rip up the landscape and shoot tin cans and throw beer bottles out the window. But the hunters are not generally like that. Hunters are people that go out and appreciate a wide variety of, of experiences that hunting is able to offer, of which the procurement of natural food is one of them. And that blended with the experience, seeing new habitat going to really interesting places, meeting really interesting people at the end of those long lanes and being able to 
and treat yourself to a lifestyle that isn't de rigueur. It's not a common thing anymore. And entertaining yourself that way and posting it to Instagram and having a great time of it and showing your friends is becoming quite popular. And for its, for its uh, detriments and its positives, I would like to look at the positives and say, I hope that we're able to recruit hunters using that breadth of experiential processes that are involved. Yeah. In, in your work kind of Howie in sort of this on, in the social questions related to hunting, what are your thoughts around the sufficiency of data that we're using to ask these questions from a perspective of people that are not white? So, you know, a couple of years ago, Curtis and I did a podcast with a young lady, um, um, on basically people of color in, in hunting and stuff. And wow, what a huge, huge eye opener. And I just remember one of the, the greatest things that actually shocked me, um, you know, like almost sort of left me speechless that she said, like to me going in the outdoors and hunting is, is like my sanctuary. That's where I go to, way, to get away from the world. That is the place I feel the most safe. And she said, for people of color, being alone in the outdoors can be one of the most unsafe places that they feel. And so what you said earlier about younger people, like not wanting to make that walk down those long driveways to a farmhouse to ask permission to go on, how well do, do you think we understand in, in the social sciences how those perspectives are different based on culture and race and religious backgrounds because it's very different in Canada now than it was back in 1978 when there were 400,000 waterfall hunters. Yeah, it really is. And I guess to be candid, I don't think we've done a really good job of asking those types of questions and seeking out different populations, diverse samples of different cultures to say, you know, what are your connections? We haven't had those opportunities. Well, we've had opportunities, we haven't done it. I think that's changing now. I think there has been a real recognition that culture matters, that, that background matters, ethnicity matters, gender matters. And we're starting to think about, well, how does that come into these issues around conservation? How does that come into activities like hunting that can contribute to conservation? And it's funny, you know, I've had a I've had kind of a challenging time engaging with hunters for data collection. And on the one hand, I was initially really enthusiastic because it's like, in a, well, it's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel in the sense that you know who the population is. They all have to buy a hunting license. And if you can get a hold of that information, you know, science, from a statistics perspective, you're, you're golden. You're going to do great. But what we found is that there's been a really low response rate among hunters to surveys around hunting. Um, and I've been puzzling about this for a while. Um, this past summer, I was working on a project with a friend of ours, Brian Gervais, who's a, uh, an avid hunter, um, works with Matt too in, in policy. And uh, we're looking at um, an area in Alberta called Cooking Lake Blackfoot Provincial Recreation Area. It's just south of Elk Island National Park, about a, an hour east of Edmonton. And in this park, there's hunting allowed. Um, it follows regular seasons. It has its own WMU. It's, it's a really interesting area. There's also 
Um, you can lease pasture for your cattle. And there's also oil wells in the park. It's a interesting working park. Um, and despite the fact there's been hunting going on in that park for decades, there's no conflicts between the hunters and the non-hunters. So Brian said, yeah, we, we got we to gotta figure this out. Like, this is a good news story. We're missing something here. So we went out and we, we asked. We, had, we engaged with the hunters, um, again, through licenses, thank goodness. And we went out there and engaged with non-hunters and asked them questions. Um, and we had a really tough time with the hunters. And there seemed to be a suspicion about what we were doing. Uh, why do you need to know these things about us? Why do you need to know these things about my activity? And I was really puzzled. Um, what's the problem here? Gosh, these are questions that get asked all the time. And Brian and I you know, talked a lot about it and talked with other folks. And I think there's a couple of things going on. There's not a, a good tradition of engaging hunters in social science surveys. It's, it's a new thing for hunters. And, you know, it's why, you know, hey, they're, and so that's, that's part of it. The other piece is that often they're doing recreation when we engage with them. So it dis it's disruptive. Why do I want to fill out a survey when I can be out in my blind? You know, do the cost-benefit analysis, and what are you going to do? You're going to go hunting instead of doing the survey. <laughs> but it's also kind of dawning on me, too, that, you know, there's this aspect of hunting that's a, a very personal and a private kind of an act. There are things that happen in the hunt, I gather. I haven't done it myself, but that are... You know, deeply personal. And you talk about these things with your hunting partners, with your family, perhaps. But why would you tell some egghead like me who you don't know and have no reason to trust? And I think the, it's incumbent upon us to start to go out and build that trust, share our research, let people know what we're finding so that they know what this is all about. Um, but it's also really challenging to provide information to support decisions when we don't really have those representative samples. So and the, I guess what I'm trying to say is we're, we're challenged to get representative samples full stop, even the more kind of traditional hunters that we would typically engage with, the Caucasian kinds of hunters. We have challenges engaging with them. And then you mentioned that you know if you're not Caucasian, if you're a different ethnicity, there might be some historical parts um, that make it challenging for you to feel comfortable in particular places. We're not even close to getting at those people yet. But I think you're right. I think there's opportunities to engage with these people to better understand those perspectives. And maybe part of the solution is in getting those different perspectives about how we can get people out on those landscapes. Beautifully said, Howie. That was actually yeah, absolutely. really good catch captured yeah. there. Uh, I want to go back to something Mark said earlier, though. If... If for this woman he interviewed, outdoors was her church, her cathedral, H how would you, f the average hunter, feel if somebody comes into their church or their cathedral and wants to ask them personal questions about their identity, their religion, their motivation, their commitment? And, and the, what the two of y'all said pairs really nicely. The other thing I might add is when somebody in an official or semi-official capacity approaches an armed hunter in the field, it's usually a conservation officer, and the alarm bells go up, the barriers come up, the, the worry of what, am I, what have I done wrong comes up, and so I can see, I can expect a certain reticence there. 
uh, you got a tough challenge there getting information out of people. And there's the, I don't want to tell you where I hunt sort of well, thing. There's, there's a certain secrecy that surrounds hunters c- compared to strangers. There's that and there's there's hunters' reluctance because they quite often see surveyors surveys to be the precursor to a decision that's made. You're no longer able to hunt here. We're closing the park down. Sorry. And it's things like that that they, I think they yep. really worry Matt about. Matt just froze up. Yeah. Well, one of the organizations that we, that Brian and I were working with, um, we said, hey, you know, we'd like to get in touch with your membership. They said, yeah, this sounds like a good idea, um, but we'd like to talk to you first. We've been hearing things about the survey and just want to kind of get a sense of who you are, where you're coming from. And it seemed perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to, you know, it wasn't, well, maybe it was a formal vetting. I'm not sure. But, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to know what people are going to be asking of your membership? You don't want to put your membership in a in a bad way, but again, there is this suspicion, this this unknown piece. Yeah. Yep. And I, but I, I would also say it's not just hunters. Survey response rates are down across Canada, across North America, and have been declining. Maybe not as precipitously as um, waterfowl hunter numbers, but people's responses to surveys are declining too. It's becoming a real challenge to to get a good sample. We're bombarded with that stuff. Like people nowadays, surveys yeah. for absolutely everything, right? Yes. Um, so, you know, a couple of, uh, I mean, I would fill my hunting surveys out before I would fill a- anything, you know, else out. I still send all my duck wings and fe- feathers and stuff in. Like, you know, I'm I'm on top of that stuff. Other stuff like taxes, I'm like, oh, really? It was last month they were due. Uh, <laughs> got my duck wings in, though. What, uh, what's really, you know, what's really interesting with surveys is that when we had volunteer surveys for hunter harvest information that was offered to hunters every year, we'd have a 30% compliance. 30%, that's it. And then when we tacked on a... Um, uh, an ability whether or not you could uh, apply on a draw depending on whether or not you completed a survey or pay a fine then all of a sudden compliance went up to 75 80 percent in a lot of these places so we're getting the harvest survey information because people are are volunteering they more than just volunteering it they see it as a necessity the other reluctance that i see from a lot of the people is what are you going to do with the data you're just going to use it to screw us out of more opportunities, aren't you? And that's not necessarily the case. And we we quite often have to say, look, we're trying to maximize the amount of opportunities that you're going to get. But in order to do that, we need to know as much information about harvest as possible. Then we're not going to manage as conservatively as we can because we have the exact intervals around confidence, around what's available, what's surplus, what is going to align with a wildlife management objective, and what can we allocate via permit numbers every year. And that is missing. And we've got to be much better with that messaging. Hmm. That makes sense. Um, so, so Matt, I mean, your, your director, one of your, your portfolios is licensing. And our our guest a couple of years ago was saying on the show and and and, and I, you know I, I can't vouch that it's the case across the entire country but we don't even at the point of sale of a hunting license collect basic data to know what cultural groups or ethnicity are buying our hunting licenses to be able to to say you know 30% are this 
if we look at our hunter recruitment strategies, we are completely misaligning messages to 30% of the culture that, you know, and, yeah. and then what percentage uh, are not. And, and, you know, she said, you know, absolute baseline of a starting point for Canada is start to collect information on the different cultural groups that are buying hunting licenses. Like and, that's and a starting a, point. And I thought that was yeah, a really interesting point. It, I think it is. And I think it's quite important, but it's a very sensitive issue, especially, especially oh, with respect to a government agency asking people's ethnicity and there's privacy laws that we, we would have to adhere to. That doesn't mean to say that we're not able to ask people to volunteer that information if they want to via another, you know, means another route but i think we really have to be able to get a, a better handle on the participation of of hunters their ethnicity their ability to um be establish themselves in the hunting community visibly so and be well engaged in the management because you come to any stakeholder meeting you're not seeing the visible minorities you're just not you're not seeing people of color you're seeing the same old white guys all the time and we need that diversity because i am seeing more and more often people of color in the field hunting and that really is great and you know even small things like on the cover of the next hunting regs having people of color offering the hunting regulations in another language being able to engage with the various cultural associations and to have presentations and information sessions on hunting and i i have this sneaking suspicion as the as the son of a polish immigrant is you know if you have an opportunity to get involved in a new country a new community and utilize the activities and the opportunities in front of you especially if those opportunities were missing or restricted in your homeland that you'll have a much higher propensity to do that that's my hypothesis howie please test it <laughs> it's funny i listened to another podcast you guys did around uh, the indigenization of the um, um north american model north american oh, model right and you suggested a number of papers in that one too i, I should have known yeah. yeah. One, of, one of the places that I get an idea about the diversity of hunters and, and fishermen in the lower mainland is at the, at the uh, outdoor shops, at the Bass Pro Shop or the Cabela's. You see who's out purchasing very specialized gear to go out and whether it's go salmon fishing or go, go bird hunting. And it sure doesn't mimic my mental map or my mental picture of who the hunting con community is. And when I'm afield, I don't see them either. But I think the purchases give you some indication, and I trust the power of marketing and profit to key in on that. I suspect that the Cabela's and the wholesale sports are way ahead of us in understanding yeah. the hunting demographic. You know where I saw no, people of color point. hunting, Lee, is when you and I are at the pheasant release sites. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, you know, why the pheasant release sites? Well, these sites are accessible to anyone. They know that there's game there that's in the hunting regulations and on the ACA website where they where they are they could drive through these areas hunters welcome they don't have to deal with any communication or language problems or issues they walk on there they hunt they know what the rules are and away they go they didn't have dogs but you know that was an impediment to them yeah it was good point. they had an opportunity to get out 
all the logistics were taken care of. It was served to them on a platter, and they yeah. just had to execute the the activities. Yeah, that's a really and, good point. All the barriers were removed. Yeah, and it was more than once that that I'll see people of color on those sites. Yeah. One of the interesting things that Rhiannon said on the podcast we did a couple of years ago, uh, and just sort of the private land um, issue, access issue that, w that we started kind of at the beginning of the conversation. And these are just things that I, I just have no frame of reference to even think of until someone, someone uh, o opens your eyes to these. But like I can see that access to private land being a huge concern for getting into waterfowl hunting in a pro like in the prairie provinces because that's you know where a lot of it takes place she was saying she went on a vacation to montana and just out touring uh you know and stuff and i can't remember if she went for a walk or she was on a mountain bike but on public roads everywhere was private land and she got to the end of the day and she was 20 or 30 something kilometers from where her vehicle was with her bike. And if she just basically cut over this little hill, like went over a fence, lifted her bike over and got on this other road, she would be back at her vehicle in a few kilometers. Otherwise she had to go all the way around and she had to make this choice at the end of the day. And she goes, one of the most dangerous things I've ever done in my life as a girl by herself of color in the state of Montana was cut across the corner of some private property because she said people have been killed because of that and 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 I, I was just like I would I'd be more worried about like if it was the paddock with bulls in it than than the, the landowner because I yeah I've yeah. made that mistake so so I I had no no way of actually ever thinking that that would be a barrier to someone getting into hunting and something like water waterfowl hunting and so the whole the whole talk like because you could just imagine like if that's a fear like a social fear and maybe a barrier what happens if you got permission to go onto the private land but you went off the land you didn't understand with it and you went on the neighbor's neighbor's land or something like that like what what a huge Fear that could be for some people, and, and I'm thinking when it comes to waterfowl hunting and private land access, what, how can we address that? One, is that a concern of people? And then two, how can we help, you know, with people approaching landowners and and developing those relationships and not not be fearful for for who they are? That's that's a really that is the depth and heart of of cultural differences. I want to tell you a very quick little story about a former graduate student named Stephen Asamoa. Stephen was from Ghana, and Stephen had very, very inky black dark skin, which is, you know, it's very common for Ghanaians to be dark skinned. And Stephen was parachuted into a project in the Eastern Irrigation District, one of the most remote prairie areas of all of, of uh, Alberta. And his job was to go from door to door, farmstead to farmstead, down those long, lonesome lanes by himself talk to farmers, gain access to their land, to do soil sampling, and, and it was a wetlands project. And to make matters worse, Stephen had a small speech impediment and he stuttered. And I thought, this is a recipe for disaster. This is a culture clash from around the world. And it went exactly the opposite direction. The farmers in there and their wives took Stephen under their, under their wing. He became a local celebrity. All the farmers were talking to each other. Has Stephen come to your land yet? 
and he's the most popular guy in the entire Eastern Irrigation District in no time. So the perception that I had, and he, he was too naive to even hold that perception, but my, my history with uh, African-American white relationships in the Deep South, I, I thought Stephen should be scared to death. He wasn't, and he was welcomed. And mm. so it struck yeah. me that maybe the perception and the depth of fear is being perpetrated on a few very grievous actors, but if we can break that down and do these handshakes and these introductions, it might be a, a group hug instead of a, a, a racial barrier. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I, I mean, I do feel really passionate about this just because waterfowling is just, it's so fun as you guys know, um, it's fantastic food. It's, you're not climbing mountains. Um, you know, it's sometimes relative, you're within sight of your vehicle, you know, sometimes like it's, you know, not leisurely hunting, but it's, it's definitely, you know, easier than the mountains, you know, where Curtis and I and hunt and stuff. And, and just the fact that we've just got this fantastic abundance of, of flying food <laughs> that's here yeah. because of conservation. It's like, man, I, I really do want more people to discover that and have access, you know, to that. And yeah, what, what really adds to that experience as well is to me, it's almost doubled in terms of satisfaction is working with a dog and it doesn't have to be your dog. It could be Lee's dog, Roxy. It could be my other friend's dogs, but having and seeing the dogs work and appreciate that adds a completely new element to the hunting experience for waterfowl, for upland game. It's just marvelous. It compounds the pleasure. Plus, they mm. can improve our table manners by example. Yeah, <laughs> especially mine. Now, now, here's another interesting aspect of Hunter's involvement in... Um, in waterfowl hunting in this country. So, you know, we, we, we talked about sort of like the group of that are interested in hunting and recruitment, getting into it. Um, how you were saying there was like about in, in your work, about 9% of the non hunters said they expressed an interest in at least trying it. Then there's the older age classes that are getting out of it, either health or they've, their hunting partners passed away. But then I see somebody like Curtis, who is at that stage in his life where, you know, um, young, got a partner, building a family, hard at work, um, you know, those sorts of things, uh, finances. I remember being there, Saturday rolled around, and you're just like, I'm tired, uh, you know, from, from being outside working. And I don't, Curtis, did you, did you get out waterfall hunting last year? I can't remember. No, I did not. I think it was yeah. the first first year in a couple of years that I hadn't actually. I still did. I did a lot of hunting. I was uh, I was focusing pretty hard. I did. I did. I hunted whitetail pretty hard the, yeah, last year. Bang for your buck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but I never. Couple actually, of teals or a whitetail deer. <laughs> yeah. No, I never actually made it out uh, out for waterfowl last year. So Curtis, that raises a really interesting question, and Matt can give us some numbers. The white-tailed deer population in Alberta, at least, has skyrocketed in recent years, and a lot of hunters go out, get their one or two whitetails very quickly, a lot of meat, the freezer's full, and all this difficulty and wet and cold to try to get a few ducks sort of falls by the wayside. 
So I wonder if there's been some substitution between the waterfowl community and the big game community with the reemergence of big game populations. It, it's a really interesting parallel because I was just thinking about the um, population cycles and what, what they're at. So the waterfowl hunters started to sort of um, decline starting when, right after the late 80s, correct? And yep. then throughout the 90s and the 2000s. Mid 70s. So, yeah, so, well, roughly at the same time, I would say late 90s is when waterfowl population, or uh, ungulate populations really took off. And in 1997, the estimate of whitetails in Alberta was 150,000. The target was 170,000. In 2007, we were 270,000, so way over target. And people were out there left and right hunting, but even that had a limiting point. And when we had chronic wasting disease and this massive, massive um, influx of tags that were available, we saw those hunter numbers stabilize because there's only so many deer people could eat and there's a lot of people hunting. But here in Alberta, most of the hunting occurs on private land in November. There are places that you can hunt in late September through October for deer, but almost all of the hunting takes place in November. And by then most of the waterfowl are gone from the prairies. So the overlap really isn't there. And I don't think that the connection is really significant. Interesting. Curtis, do you feel this is something like, do you, do you ever think about it? Like, do you go like, man, am I ever going to get to go duck hunting again? Is my life going to get too busy? Is it going to be something that doesn't have a place in my life in the future? Or you're just I, not that far ahead? Yeah, not that. I, I definitely think about it um, when I'm halfway up the side of the mountain slogging through someplace <laughs> and you're looking down in the valley big, bottom trying to go after a big high country mule deer buck and i'm like ah oh, god oh, i should them, be sitting them in the yellow fields right down now. there in the valley bottom <laughs> coffee yeah. yeah so so curtis the other thing for you is being in cranbrook i mean there's a drive over to creston or there's balmer's flats i don't know of too many other you know places that are you know readily available for duck hunting Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, it's kind of here. It's basically like the Kootenai River bottom, and then yeah. over to. I mean, I'm I'm an hour west east, sorry, of Cranbrook. I'm in Fernie, and I'm really really oh, close right. to. I'm about I'm about yeah. twenty minutes half hour from the BC Alberta border, yeah. um, and I know a couple places to access little pieces of. Um, public land kind of out by pincher creek and and out there um and so i've actually even thought it's like i'd, I'd kind of like to zip out that way yeah and do, do a little bit out there? there but yep yeah creston yep. for sure i've picked a couple up uh cool. here yep not not by like thousands of birds in the sky and like picking one out but just <laughs> afterwards going hey this is a wood duck. yeah nice. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Very cool. So, well, I mean, when, when they're when they're not in their full plumage, even when they're flying by, they actually, like, if they're in the in the molt phases, they yeah. kind of look like a lot like gadwalls. And, yes, yeah, it's sort know, of square tails, smallish bird, yeah, lots with their head cocked back, kind of mottled colors and whatnot. But uh, yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic. I don't know if we've uh, completely cracked the nut to explain this this big decline. Um, But what I think, you know, maybe we're sharing for listeners and stuff is there's a huge opportunity Mm -hmm. here. Oh, Um, yeah. And there could be 10,000 people listening and 10,000 different reasons um, why they've got out of it or, or why they would like to get into it. Um, so, you know, maybe you've heard some themes, you know, that we talked about today. I, I would just, you know, encourage folks to, you know, really take the duck by its bill. And, and if you're interested in, in waterfowl hunting, like really run, run that to ground, like start, start asking you know sometimes to find a mentor you've got to like like ask around you know a little bit to make make yourself um known uh, i did that trapping last year i just started kind of putting the word out and i did i had a fellow that just said you know this is part of my responsibility as a trapper to to get more people into it and, and he gave me some opportunity on on part of his trap line and um so sometimes you got to be you know, um, advertise, let, like, let's, let's put it that way. So Mark, um, I would, I would pitch another angle to this. A lot of the folks listening to you right now are going to be duck hunters and big game hunters. And for them, they, they have an opportunity to extend a hand out and bring new, new hunters into the fold and welcome them to serve as a mentor. And it can be a heck of a lot of fun. Actually, I can say it the hell of a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> Because you see in your your original hunting experiences through the fresh eyes of a newbie, and it's just a blast. Uh, so everybody ought to literally. Make a goal of, yeah, every <laughs> every year or two having a new hunter into the fold for succession planning there. Yeah, that's always a good that's always a good goal is to introduce someone new into hunting. Uh, Howie, when that podcast that you listened to on the indigenization of the North American model wildlife conservation. So our friend Mateen, who was sort of like the primary architect of that paper, and Dr. Matt, Adam Ford and a couple others were involved in that. So Mateen is very involved in the backcountry hunters and anglers. And he, when he was at the University of Montana, he established, I believe he established the first collegiate chapter of BHA in the United States. Then he came up here to continue on his studies uh, in British Columbia. He established the first BHA collegiate chapter in Canada, which was at um, UBC Okanagan campus. And they started, I think was the first year last year. Do you remember Curtis? A waterfowl program. That's great. Um, yeah, so they were was, just. I think it was last their, year. Yeah. Their friends call it same thing. Hey, are you interested in duck hunting and some food? And they're like, Yeah, I'll give it a try. And they went out and, you know, got people out there and did did what you guys were saying. They cooked up some ducks in the field. They did the same thing with ice fishing in the wintertime. So, um, he's Mateen is a is a fantastic person and he's way younger than us, uh, mentoring people and and doing it at that at that uh post-secondary kind of level which is you know i think where there's a lot of open-mindedness oh that's really cool yeah um guys any any last thoughts around this topic of increasing duck number waterfowl numbers in north america and declining 
hunter numbers. Well, I, I guess I would fixes. I would give you one thing is in the old days we were competing for space and we didn't want more hunters in the field. Nowadays the tables have turned and we really need to increase our numbers for not only awareness, conservation dollars, uh, so we basically maintain as a viable entity in the social fabric that makes up this conservation movement. But it really would be nice to have twice as many duck hunters as we have now. I never yeah. thought I'd mm -hmm. say that. Yeah. But it really would be nice. Sure. Matt, any uh, wrap-up thoughts on this topic? I, I would like to see the provincial and state agencies really get involved more so in human dimensions and, and utilize the expertise of folks like Howie and, and Lee. And uh, as biologists, we're really great at talking about population levels and predator-prey dynamics and Lotka Volterra, you know, population cycles. But we're not very good at um, engagement. We're not very good at knowing what makes people tick and what motivates them. And it's the researchers like Howie and Lee and Brian Jobert that uh, are really necessary parts of fish and wildlife management um, throughout North America, throughout the world for, for that matter. Brian Jobert has recently taken on um, a role with us as a policy advisor in fish and wildlife. And it's a huge breath of fresh air because he's able to bring those concepts that will apply to the problem of waterfowl hunting participation. And the more that they work with researchers like Howie and the Office of the Chief Scientist here, the more we're able to understand it. We came to the conclusion today on the podcast with respect to mentorship, with respect to competition, with a variety of other activities that are out there. And to learn from Howie, a lot of these aren't really spectacular. It's like, well, I have no one to go with, or my parents never really told me, or yeah, I'm interested in it, but I just need some help. And we need to know that, and we need to be able to move on with that. So yeah, that's, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> awesome, <laughs> about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Howie, any final final thoughts? I'm sure you echo what Matt just said about more more in the social sciences. I and I concur. Yeah, I think I think we are seeing increasingly um, you know government support for social science to inform decisions. You know, we're not we're gonna we're not gonna make that decision. We'll provide you with information to, so you can make that decision because there's lots of balls to keep up in the air. Um, I guess I'd say you know, hunting is that focus on that social aspect. And certainly all of our networks, we got to rejuvenate them. We, we need that new ideas, new people to go with, people with different schedules that can go with us when we want to go, maybe. Um, so that, that part for sure. And I think recognizing, too, that I think there's a lot of interest from people to become immersed in the outdoors, to be, get that introduction to nature. It's not just about the harvest. There's lots of other parts of the hunt that I think people may not focus on or, or know about. And it's those other things that I think might help to grab people's attention. But I think also, don't be afraid to fill out that survey. Don't be afraid to, <laughs> to talk to the, you know, the geeks and nerds like me who are really curious about why you do the things you do. And sure, ask us if we have that agenda. Ask the questions you need to, to trust what we're doing, for sure. It's, it's a relationship, it's two ways. But share that information, because without it, 
we make decisions in a vacuum and that's not in your interest fear not your nerd friends welcome them open hearts and minds and howie you need to put that that ponytail up under your hat when you're doing those surveys okay (laughs) no i think i think the only reason why he needs to put it under his hat is so people there's no so hunters don't get it they'll say well look at that gray fox (laughs) <laughs> how he got 16 surveys done and then he got trapped and skinned <laughs> i'd have a i'd have a ponytail like that if i had your your hair howie so no i don't have it anymore um yeah no i think uh you know we hear hunters across north america like really picking up this mantra of science-based wildlife management um you know sort of as the counter to these emotional um you know type decisions the let's vote on wildlife management you know type ballots that we've seen uh like for real down in the u.s that sort of stuff and i've always been a strong advocate that in wildlife management and in hunting for our best interest we do need to advocate for science-based management which is the biological ecological sciences but it's also the social sciences so we understand you know, the biology and ecology of the other species, Homo sapiens. And uh, I, I, I really, really um, endorse that message. Was it last fall, Curtis, or last spring, we had uh, Howie, one of your uh, colleagues from the university on, Vic Ad- Adamowitz, oh, yeah. oh, the, the economist. And it was yeah, like the first awesome. and only time we had an economist on, but, but he talked about um, studies that he had been involved in, um, understanding people's motivations for hunting in responses to chronic wasting disease. You know, were they deterred? Were they not? What were their motivating factors and those sorts of things? Because that would inform policy and was information that, you know, fellows like Matt would use to, you know, try to maximize opportunity. So that, that sort of, you know, and I think he kind of recognized that that was social sciences too. He was interested in what motivated people. Um, So huge, huge shout out to the social sciences and the work you've done. And all all the sciences, all the sciences and yeah, science-based management for sure, but science doesn't make the decisions. It informs the decisions. Forms the, the decisions, be- the, you bet. The better science we have, the better decision-making ability we'll have. And it's it's no, absolutely necessary. Point. Yeah, Absolutely great point. Curtis, anything to wrap up on this topic of getting into waterfall hunting? I will have to say he's the youngest fella here, and I would say he's probably... I know for me, he's mentored more of his friends into waterfowl hunting, you know, in the last five or six years than than That's than great. I have. Um, he's Curtis's same with fishing. He's just amazing. And uh, I mean, how many of your friends, Curtis? Three, four, five, something of all. Yeah, half so. half a dozen at least, and it. Uh, <clears throat> well, it goes goes back to that sort of the saying that that to to really learn something yeah or to to be able to teach something you really have to know something and i've found that because i was a fly fishing guide for just about eight years and teaching people how to do it exponentially increased my ability when i went out on my own and i kind of have the same i kind of rope 
waterfowling and fly fishing in the same sort of category as I don't take it like as serious and hardcore as the big game hunting. So it's kind of like that more relaxing. Ah, yeah, let's, let's just go out. Let's, let's have a quick little wing shoot or whatever, do that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, so I, I like to do that sort of stuff and take more people out. I'm pretty selective when I go out big game hunting as to who I hunt with, but, but yeah, it's definitely taking people out will increase your knowledge for sure because you're now rather than doing something it's like well why are we doing this and then you have to stop and think why are we doing this and then you have to explain (laughs) it in a way and it's like like, i I subscribe to that where you you have to know something or you'll get better at something when you teach somebody because i'm like I'm like, son, I've got a semi-automatic 12 gauge. Let me show you how to miss a duck three times yeah. very quickly. <laughs> I can Dude, speak that's, from that's nothing. Anybody can miss a duck with one shot. Let me yeah. show you how to do it three times. From the yeah. old guy's um, perspective, though, though uh, Curtis, it's really handy for us to have some young hunters to go out with to haul that that mule deer down the hillside or to <laughs> set those decoys in chest deep water or to load that boat with the broken winch cable. You know, it, it's a mutually beneficial <laughs> thing. We might have a little bit heavier duty credit card in our wallet, but you got the, the back muscles and the, and the reach. Um, Curtis, is, uh, maybe just ra- uh, wrap that up by just sort of saying, like, what are your thoughts around folks if they have an interest in waterfall hunting, even if they didn't grow up with it? Because we didn't. We learned it kind of on our own together. Like, what would you say to people to... <clears throat> yeah, I should would you say, do this or shouldn't you? Well, hundred percent do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, like you said with the trapping, just you sometimes you just gotta advertise yourself. And I know I'm oh, I'm yeah. speaking from the the younger generation as well. It's like I know lots of people that don't like to make that long walk down or or reach out because um, anxiety or I don't know what it is. But I have no problem doing that and. One, it gives me an edge because I've gained lots of fishing access in in southern Alberta and just by going up and knocking, hey, do you mind if I do this? And it gives you the edge over people who might be a little bit too reserved to do that. So, yeah, don't be afraid to advertise yourself, and you should definitely get into duck hunting because it's pretty sweet. (laughs) Right on. Oh, great conversation, everybody. Um Man, it's it's still spring, and I'm I, I'm like maybe we maybe we pulled the trigger and talked about waterfall hunting too early because it's, <laughs> it's a little ways away. Because I'm really I'm really pumped up. You guys on the prairies can go out and hunt, you snow know, geese. snow geese and stuff right now. But uh, yeah, we don't have those here. But uh, no, really appreciate the conversation. Really appreciate kind of the varied perspectives from both your personal and professional backgrounds. I think that was a really really cool thing and um yes uh thank you guys for recommending howie and howie coming on the show and talking a little bit about the social side of things that's that was cool well thanks very much mark thanks curtis i appreciated uh appreciated the conversation yeah (laughs) great thank you so Uh, much and and you can you can download the podcast and listen to the these guys over and over and over again. Oh. Too, so. um, <laughs> just, just Matt, we bed. were saying, Matt, we were saying we're gonna um, do random drills 
of like logging on and starting a podcast. Uh, that was Curtis's <laughs> idea, just just for practice. So when the real when the real time comes, it's just like click your yeah. you're on. So yeah. anytime, um, anytime. Call yeah, me when I, I'm right the in the joke middle of was, a meeting. Yeah, we'll, we'll get a we'll get a, I'll give the minister a call in Alberta, and he'd be like, he'd be like, Matt, I need a podcast done 9 a.m. tomorrow morning on my desk. <laughs> done. <laughs> uh, Curtis, take it away. Right on. Well, maybe we can uh, we can thank Alpine, Toyota, and their contributions to Ducks Unlimited single-handedly for the exponential increase in waterfowl numbers across North America. <laughs> I bet you it was all those folks down there doing that. But uh, yeah, Hunter Conservationist Podcast brought to you by community-minded Alpine Toyota. Brum, brum, brum. <laughs> <laughs> that was the uh, the ex- well maybe maybe the new Toyotas are like the Teslas where you can program in all the the different horn sounds. So yeah. if if any people out there with the new Toyotas, we can uh, we can throw Lee there. That'll be your if, if you want, sound of your sound of your engine. Yeah. If you the, want your new Alpine Toyota <laughs> to sound just like. A moose in the rut. You could listen, listen to Lee. Lee? Do you want the mallard package or the teal package? Yeah. <laughs> Matt, Matt bought the northern. Matt bought the northern shoveler package in the Toyota truck. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's why we have editing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so just to wrap that up, Bruce Smith, the owner of Alpine Toyota, I was telling you guys before the show, is a really big supporter of Ducks Unlimited Canada and for all of this. He hasn't missed a fundraising banquet uh, for Ducks Unlimited Canada in over 30 years. He gets his dealership involved, sponsors uh, fundraising projects that we hear, have here in Cranbrook for Ducks Unlimited Canada. Um, that's why Curtis always talks about it. Um, it comes from the top, comes from the owner, um, the whole business. And yeah, it's, it's a little tiny part of probably why we have wetland conservation a little bit more because uh, of people like Alpine Toyota and Bruce and a few more ducks. Now we just need a few more people to get out there and knock them out of the air and cook them up and eat them. All right, everybody, we'll see you in the next episode.